I'm Alina Utrada, and you're listening to The Rights Pod, a podcast by the Center for Human Rights and International Justice at Stanford University. Welcome back to The Rights Pod. For this week's episode, we're returning to our notes from alumni series. For those of you who haven't listened to the previous episodes, Notes from Alumni is where I sit down with graduates of the Human Rights Minors program and ask them what life in the immediate years after Stanford has been like and what a human rights career means to them. Most of the graduates we've spoken to have only spent one or two years outside Stanford. But our speaker today, Daniel Mattis, graduated way back in 2012. What I love about my conversation with Daniel is that he gave us some perspective about how perspective changes and how even the things you thought you wanted or you thought you wanted to do can change too. You're listening to The Rights Pod. So hi everyone. We're really excited because today we're talking to Stanford alum, Daniel Mattis. Thanks for having me. So Daniel, what class year were you at Stanford? I was a class of 2012. Yeah, so maybe you could tell us then since you're the only person on this podcast who isn't a human rights minor, um, sort of like what your, uh, like briefly what you did at Stanford, how you ended up like incorporating human rights, and then also how you ended up being affiliated with the, the Center for Human Rights. Yeah, so I was a double major in international relations and Italian. Um, I also ended up as a senior joining the Center for Democracy Development Rule of Law Honors Program. And um, it was more in my second half of my time at Stanford that I started to focus my IR major uh, more in the direction of rule of law, justice issues, international justice, and human rights. So I did the honors program under the guidance of Helen Stacy, focusing on the domestic trials in Argentina after the dirty war in the late 1970s. Um, and in that period, I focused more, even more than before on the international criminal justice aspect. Um, but in my studies at Stanford, I'm not very good at remembering, but there weren't that many options actually to focus like solely on human rights. There was a course from Terry Carl, who I'm not sure if she's still there, but it was, that was the course like on human rights. Um, and I actually never took that class. So I wouldn't actually say that my studies were really focused only on human rights. I was always interested in that, but it was much more focused on justice, legal, criminal, criminal justice issues. And with my, Next steps, um, I kind of continued to follow this criminal justice issue um, after I'd taken a course with David Cohen, who at the time was a visiting professor from Berkeley, um, where he ran the War Crime Studies Center. David Cohen, for those of you who don't know, is the um, director of the Center for Human Rights at Stanford. Mm -hmm. And now a professor at Stanford, not Berkeley. Um, <laughs> we got him. <laughs> yeah. Um, so he was teaching, I think he was in his 
second or maybe it was his first like i think it was his second installment like yearly installment of this course that he was teaching about international criminal tribunals um and going back from nuremberg through the present and we analyzed the like from a legal perspective um, as well as a human rights activist uh, historical context um, perspective and uh, we talked about all these different situations and the different trials that came about and it was a small class it was lots of hearing david talking about his experiences like with each of these tribunals where he had had some research or had done some monitoring etc etc um and and that kind of pin like pointed me on this path of uh, more international criminal justice interests and the way it interacts with activist uh advocacy claims for human rights grievances in a in a criminal uh retributive justice um system and yeah then i ended up i can get to that later <laughs> <laughs> well yeah i know it might seem like a lifetime ago both like personally and in the world but um can you take us back to like when you graduated stanford and and how you figured out um what you were going to do do next mm, yeah i can't remember exactly the the around what time it was i guess it was in the spring of senior year i was starting to think okay what am i going to do next i had been considering like what people around me were doing a lot of people were talking about staying in the bay area which is where i'm from a lot of people we're gonna go work in tech companies. Everyone at the time, it was kind of the, the peak of the distaste for working on Wall Street or consulting, which had preceded my class, like um, because of the financial crisis. So it was a kind of a big movement, even people trying to like stop having um, all these job fairs with only banks and consulting firms on campus. And I was like, knew I wasn't interested in that too, but ironically now the feeder from schools like Stanford into those industries has turned towards tech. Um, and so I found that I don't want to work in tech and um, I don't want to do anything like th that. And I also kn knew I wanted to kind of travel and try living outside of the Bay Area um, <laughs> for more than like my study abroad period. And um, yeah, I, I didn't have that many opportunities. I was applying to a lot of human rights related things. Um, but you know, most of the things centered in the U.S. They they weren't um, kind of more development side of things, or they were more, yeah, events. The, the opportunities available to an entry level person like me, um, or I would need to go further in my academic career, getting a master's or even more. So yeah, when the opportunity presented itself that David Cohen was hiring um, graduating seniors as interns on his monitoring program at the Khmer Rouge Tribunal in Cambodia, I really like started thinking about it. I actually heard about it from a friend who was in it as a senior because I had been a junior in his class. So I wasn't graduating yet, but then my friend who was a fellow senior who was taking the course as a senior reminded me that he was doing that again he was hiring people again because he had done it in my year as well and uh i thought huh maybe i should get in contact with david and um i started weighing it a lot i remember like thinking about it and and like 
I don't normally like make pro and con lists and stuff <laughs> like that, but I really was thinking about it. And because uh, like, it's one thing to take a, a job that you don't feel ready for, um, but to do it and move to Cambodia as well was uh, another extra leap, but also the kind of exactly the kind of leap that excited me and made me feel like this is the right risk to take and move to take um, at this moment, which is very open. And I was very privileged to be able to think about so many opportunities and not have to worry about, you know, going to a job where I could have an immediate like payback. Um, so this was an exciting moment. And I remember thinking like, I don't know what will happen from it. And that's, that was exciting after having been on this like track of being a good student, like to get to Stanford and then trying to do my best at Stanford. And now I was like in control to <laughs> take my next step. Yeah. So you did end up going to Cambodia. Yeah. And in how long were you there for? So I arrived in September, 2012 and I, it was kind of open-ended so I could stay as long as I wanted, but I had always kind of planned six months and I stayed until early April, 2013, uh, right before my new year. So can you tell us a bit about um, like, wh what was that transition like, you know, like you're not just leaving Stanford to go into the working world, you're leaving Stanford, you're leaving the Bay Area and you're going to work um, in Cambodia. So so what was it like moving there? Um, I think I was full of expectation and like a bit of exoticism and uh, like excitement so i didn't really know what to expect i imagined a lot of things and um the reality of what i ended up doing was like a very nicely paced office job um where i had like lots of time to myself in nice weather weekends to travel and i was of course in a different environment but it it very quickly settled into a work routine as well as a social routine with my work colleagues or with my new housemates who were all like uh they were all like europeans who were working in uh teaching jobs or internships um and other human rights organizations as well um mm -hmm. so i don't know i i remember thinking like this doesn't feel that um strange the first the first week maybe was a time of thinking like, okay, where am I going to live? That kind of hectic moment of moving anywhere. Um, and, but I also jumped into going to all the historical related sites in Phnom Penh. And there was actually like a, a major conference, a legacy conference about the Khmer Rouge Tribunal on the very day that I arrived. So like the first thing I did, my uh, new like boss, the head of the monitoring team, she asked me to come just to, to see and like get to know the faces of the players. And yeah, that was exciting. I mean, actually that was when the US cared about the world. So the Stephen Rapp, the ambassador at large for war crimes from the Obama administration was there like giving a keynote at the, at the hotel where it was taking place. David was in town as well, which he's not always there for. So it felt like, well, I'm going into something like serious. Then I started to understand like, okay, this is just so very rare occasion where the rest of the world pretends to be totally invested in this court. And then 
we'll see what happens after. <laughs> yeah, so what was it like being at, at the tribunal? Um, yeah, it was exciting. I kind of had this, because when I was a um, student, like at Stanford in the summers, I worked one summer for uh, Jackie Spear on the peninsula, who's a co congressional representative um, in her district office. And then the next summer I worked in her DC office. I had the same feeling that of going to the Capitol Hill for the first time, like being excited mm -hmm. by this big institution and aware that I'll encounter problems and, um, you know, waste and, and delays, um, but excited to see it from the inside and um, kind of get to know how the institution works. So yeah, I had the same feeling. What I didn't know was the great team that I would get to be working with um, as much as like David and Penelope, the, uh, who is, who's the deputy director of the center at Stanford now, she had been the one to like give me the, the clear uh, kind of lay out the expectations for what, what I would be doing. And they had like talked so much about the amazing team there, but only when you're around those kind of people do you realize that they really are amazing and what they're um, doing at the time, also what they're interested in doing and, and what they've ended up doing after is pretty impressive. Uh, yeah, so then in April, um, how did you decide that it was the right time to, to leave and what did you decide to do next? Well, I had like, I guess I had gone in with this idea in my mind that it would be six months. Um, at the same time, I was open to it going longer, but there had been a lot of delays at the court while I was there, not like, not like later, it only got worse. But at the time I was there, it was like the first major delay in a while because, that's not true, it must not have been first. Um, there was a major delay because uh, Yang Seri, who was the foreign minister of the, the Democratic Kampuchea regime and one of the, the people on trial in case 002, had been like getting sicker and sicker. He is old and he had gone in the hospital soon after I arrived and he kept going in and out. And by March, he had passed away. So he was removed from the case. And because of that, like they hadn't developed a system yet to allow like the proceeding to continue in his absence uh, with just his lawyers representing him. So after that, they, they started to develop more rules for for handling that kind of thing if the other elderly um, uh, accused needed to be in the holding cell instead of the courtroom. Um, so because of that, there had been these delays, there had been these pockets where we didn't have much on, especially I think in February, because that's when I took a, one of my longer like trips in the region just to travel because we had all this sudden free time. Um, and then, yeah, but I had already kind of built in my mind that I would be going back. And plus it was Cambodian New Year, which is in uh, mid-April. So it was, it was gonna be a, a good kind of uh, end point for my time there. And my, my, my fellow graduate, uh, she was also planning to go back at the same time. So we thought, okay, well, we can end this chapter and I, that's when I started to think about what, what can I do next to continue in these areas that kind of were starting to really interest me. Mm -hmm. So what did you end up doing next? Um, I started thinking about um, 
how could I work in a human rights organization focused on especially contemporary issues in Southeast Asia. And I would be very happy to go back to Cambodia. I had made a lot of friends and like had great memories of it. So, uh, but I was also thinking, okay, like how can, I was still in this very Stanford mindset of thinking like, how can I always be climbing up? Like I started this project on the Khmer Rouge Tribunal. Maybe I'll go get my master's. Um, then I'll come back to Cambodia and then I'll go work in a regional level in Bangkok or Singapore or something. And then I'll like turn that into a job back home in, in the U.S. Like at a, at a higher level than I could have been in if I had been working in the U.S. the whole time. Um, and really thinking in that like five year, 10 year plan mindset. Um, so yeah, I went and I did my master's. I found uh, that the rather than having to wait like for a whole cycle to apply in the American system, I could just apply to rolling admissions in the UK. Um, I also was excited to know that I didn't have to do the GRE and <laughs> I could um, do it in one year. So no matter what, it was going to be faster, cheaper to get the same kind of degree that I needed, like a, a master's in political science, something or other. And um, yeah, I found a program that was focused on global politics and global civil society, which was exciting to me um, at LSE, at the London School of Economics. And yeah, I got in. I had a nice recommendation from David. So it was, it was exciting and it felt like, okay, this is right. It's all like fitting into place. And in the meantime, I also did some consulting for a small um, consulting, like very, very small, like one person, consulting firm on the peninsula um, focused on philanthropy, philanthropic consulting, which was an opportunity also to do some research about, um, like I did a project for her about the, the field of family and community foundations that are focused on funding international human rights work, which I kind of knew about conceptually, but here was like the numbers that, of how much funding there is from the US and stuff like that. So that was an interesting way to start to understand how not just governments, not just international organizations, but also um, wealthy philanthropists in the United States like contribute to creating these legacies uh, related to human rights work and the pitfalls and successes of that. Yeah. So then I did my master's and I enjoyed the program. I didn't enjoy London as much as I expected I would. Um, but oh, I, is that? Oh, huh? Why? Oh, why is that? Yeah. It's just like a cold, gray place. I had some great friends there, but um, yeah, like I just miss California where everyone, like strangers talk to you on the street and everyone's nice and happy and the weather's nice. <laughs> <laughs> the sun does make a huge difference. <laughs> yeah. Um, and yeah, the program was interesting and I was able to focus like as much as I wanted on Southeast Asia in particular. Um, I was able to focus on kind of the same kinds of issues, democracy, human rights, um, justice, rule of law issues, but in the Southeast Asian context. And um, yeah, I felt satisfied with it. When, so then I started thinking again about what kind of jobs will I apply to? I started thinking of all the main human rights organizations in Cambodia, where I had some friends working at a few of them. And um, 
but there weren't that many positions open at the time. And I think I applied to a few like regional organizations, but then David got in touch with me that they were going to start a new monitoring program because a new trial was about to begin, which was case 002 slash two, which is the second part of the trial that I had already monitored as, a, as an intern. Um, and so that they were hiring a, an international lead trial monitor to run the monitoring team um, with a Cambodian counterpart who they already had. And so I was in Cambodia in my spring break doing research for my dissertation. So I met them and we talked about it and I was like, <laughs> this doesn't sound bad. I like get to go back to the great team. I get to go back to Phnom Penh. It's going to be a really interesting trial because it's going to be bigger dealing with more issues, including genocide, including uh, forced marriage. Um, and I would have a job secured waiting for me after I finish my master's. Um, yeah, so it all kind of lined up again nicely. And um, so I took the job and uh, I came back home to San Francisco to finish my thesis and have some time here. And then I went back to Cambodia again in September. 2014 for the trial that was going to begin in October 2014. Mm -hmm. And so you kind of mentioned having your five-year plan that did do you feel like that that was part of your five-year plan did, did it all work out um the next you know couple of years the way you thought it would? <laughs> no <laughs> uh well first of all like I'm not a I wasn't at Stanford a person who cared about that stuff like I knew all the, the, everyone knows those people that most, most of the students are that way. Um, and many people have to be that way because they have to like pay back student loans and, um, you know, or they're in a type of career where you really need to keep moving forward, like medical profession, or you, if you know you want to be a lawyer, you have to do the same. Um, so I think when I took the job in the first place to go to Cambodia, I, uh, I was really thinking like, I don't need plans, like anything like that. Once I was there, I started to think, okay, now why am I here? Like, what is this for? Um, how will this help me keep doing this kind of work? Um, whether it's in Cambodia, another country or back in the US eventually. And so that's when I started to kind of formulate plans in my head. And, and I was obviously like comparing myself to friends um, and from high school or from Stanford who were, you know, more in a, in a track. And uh, my new five-year plan that I developed at that point, which was to do the master's, come back to get a job, it kind of derailed in what year was that? So I came back to Cambodia in September, 2014. And in September, 2015, is that right? Yeah, it's right, it was five years. Uh, September 2015, I opened a cafe in Phnom Penh with some <laughs> friends. So one year after I had, had moved back to Cambodia, kind of like a cafe and art space and bar, um, small place with some Cambodian friends. And yeah, I, I kept telling myself, like, I have to make sure like that that cafe doesn't anchor me in Cambodia, that if I get a job opportunity somewhere else, like that I have it set up that like it will manage itself or the others can manage it like that. I have to be ready to leave. You know, I kept telling myself like that. And um, 
it did end up anchoring me for sure um, <laughs> but you know like the the ways that I needed something like totally different to do that or else I would never have allowed myself to accept that I guess um, to accept like taking time in the place where I was where I am um, staying in the job past some arbitrary like two-year window um, and also exploring the other things that interested me beyond just my profession and, and career um, and because of that I started to like also take time with my friends which were increasingly a group of like filmmakers and, and visual artists um, so I started helping them out with my free time that I had like you know helping them with English things related like related to grant writing or uh, fixing subtitles or stuff like that where I could help um, and then increasingly it became like a job and uh, now I'm producing films and co-writing films with them that's since uh, 2016 early 2016 so these two new things the, the film thing especially like became like a simultaneous new path where I am doing it at the same time as the monitoring work and then the other work, the program work that the Center for Human Rights is doing in Cambodia. Um, yeah, and then the third thing that was happening was that the trial again was very slow, very delayed. <laughs> so any idea that this would be a quick like year and a half trial, I'd be in and out the court would have learned from its past, like that was quickly <laughs> gone. There was like a three month defense team boycott at the beginning of the trial. Like it was not gonna be a quick trial. It ended up being like three years and I ended up kind of moving back towards the program side of things. And we hired a Caitlin, Caitlin McCaffrey, who's a, a Australian to take over the, the international side of the monitoring team. Um, and that was cool because I had the opportunity to work on our other programs which were related to community outreach, legal education, and some archive work. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I guess like how, you know, your plans changed and I wonder like, was that something that like felt challenging or like what was the challenges to you? Did you just feel like it was sort of natural, like it happened all of a sudden one day you're like, I'll just open a cafe or um, was that something like really consciously you decided to be like, okay, like this whole five-year plan climbing up the ladder isn't working for me? Um, I was definitely aware that I was like doing something crazy with the cafe. With, with the cafe. Yeah. <laughs> I do have to say for our <laughs> listeners, I have been to Daniel's cafe and it is very, very cool and hip and I love it. <laughs> yeah, it's going to close actually soon, but we don't uh -oh. know exactly when. It's been five years on the lease and the landlord wants to raise the rent and our business is small and COVID like is the last death. Uh, yes. <laughs> but, um, but it was gonna close before COVID came around anyway, um, which is fine. I'm ready for that now. <laughs> A year ago, I would have tried to make any way to extend it, but no, I need to, I need to move on. But I only know that because of, you know, the things happening in my life and, um, the things that have become more important to me, like the film stuff is more important to me now. And I know that there's no way I can manage a cafe if I want to take that seriously. And if I want to reinvest my time that I wouldn't have to worry about the cafe in 
the center's activities as well. It's like, it's an opportunity and exciting to me again that um, now's the chance to kind of innovate with what the center is doing uh, in Cambodia. Now that childs have, looks like have stopped for good, um, what will the center be doing? So that's exciting to me and I need to have the cafe be done to be able to have a more open mind to think about that but going back to before when the cafe opened five years ago um yeah I definitely was aware that okay this has a chance of keeping me in Cambodia disabling me from going to other parts of the region because why would I be working in Bangkok when I have a cafe in Phnom Penh I should just stay in Phnom Penh that kind of thing um it also made me realize that the situation I had, like a work situation, um, employment situation with the Stanford Center was uh, unique, like, and I really appreciated that. Like, I had a job that was flexible, that um, allowed me to have a cafe, like, at the same time that I'm doing uh, work for a, for a human rights center, and that um, allowed me to continue getting income at the same time that I had to like put too much time on the cafe. If I was working at a local human rights organization, I would be having to be in the office, you know, nine to five um, behind a desk, even if I don't have that much work to do. Um, and I would be getting uh, paid less actually. Um, and I, yeah, it, it would not be flexible. I wouldn't have all this time to, to say like, I'm taking today to like manage this crisis at my cafe or something. <laughs> Um, and I didn't have the trust that I had in the team in Cambodia as well as from David and Penelope that like I would get my work done um, even if I wasn't at the office that day or something so and yeah I was also aware doubting myself doubting that I was like des I deserved that kind of trust um, especially in the first two years we're trying to manage like the new role on the team, which wasn't about monitoring, but trying to do other like fuzzier stuff or like research and direct my own research and produce a report or an output of that research. Like I had a lot of research projects at that time that I did or that I oversaw, including with you, that kind <laughs> of like went to the wayside. And I felt like a lot of like guilt or um, like, just like not good feelings about the fact that I was choosing, not choosing, but ending up having to take time to work at the cafe uh, or manage something like accounting or human resources at the cafe that I could have been spending, like doing the, the thing on the project that I came to Cambodia for in the first place. Um, so, and that all fed into feelings like this is gonna mess up whatever comes next, whatever comes next, like constantly thinking that way like as if there's some job waiting for me, like that, that if I don't do this business, like I'll never get to like my fate. <laughs> the job that is my <laughs> the fate. predestiny. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> um, which if, you, if I step away from it and like think about it, like this is very clear to me how ridiculous that is. Um, but you know, when you're in that moment and you're like, you're, you're late on a project or you're unable to turn like your research into a written output um you think about all the ways that you failed and um and you think of all the ways that you uh like went off your path or 
took advantage of your situation, like, or someone's trust or something. So um, in general, I was like very happy with my situation. But when I really thought about it, I thought like, this isn't right. Like I'm not doing this right. Um, and I guess it was really, again, it's the film stuff that made me see like a different way like that I, I started doing the film stuff. So there was definitely one point where I was doing a lot still for the cafe, like before the, the, the staff had kind of taken over things. And, um, and I was still busy with the Stanford Center and I was getting really busy with the film stuff. And I was thinking, this is untenable. Like this is going to go only wrong. But I started to feel actually more, um, more like happy with my situation, more um, comfortable in my routine in my managing time and it just happened kind of naturally. I don't think I really did anything differently. I didn't like have some app that helped me manage time better or anything like <laughs> that. I just like, I think it was because I was enjoying the work that I was like kind of self-directing at Stanford Center. I was really enjoying the opportunity to work with my good friends in film and on projects that really like meant a lot to me. Um, as someone who like loves film always as a side like passion or hobby um, but never had the chance to like be a part of it and yeah the, the cafe was doing a bit better as well like more self-sustaining um, so there was kind of a moment where I felt like I was more in a flow and I think like having that kind of passion project of the, the film work um, showed me that the path that I had um, built out the predestiny um, that I had imagined uh, was invented and that the, the things that we, that we choose to do, like if we follow what we want to do, what we like to do, and we of course like are able to make it financially sustainable. Um, and those are the things that we should continue following. We shouldn't be trying to uh, fit into a mold that that only we have constructed for ourselves. Um, I still like, and now that I've been home for for two months, almost two months because of COVID, I'm thinking about okay, I need to like get my act together. Now's my chance to think about what could I be doing in the U.S. like right now, like while I'm uh, unsure when I can go back to Cambodia, and thinking a bit long term, medium term in that way, and. Yeah, I've been like getting back into the same mindset. I need to look for jobs. I need to look for jobs like um, that could lead to a career back home in the U.S. And that's for a variety of reasons. But um, then I kind of keep having this come back to myself moment where I think, but why would I start as an entry level in some organization in San Francisco when I've built my life in this crazy way that I have? Um, why not continue rolling with it and experiencing it? And I think, I do think that things lead to one another in a different form of predestiny maybe, but it's, it's totally different. It's not like with all these other forms of expectation built into it. It's really like allowing yourself to just be yourself and accepting the, the things as they come. And that's what I did in the first place when I took the job in Cambodia. And I often remember that, but I, I just, was there like at Stanford nearly graduating and weighing, should I do this crazy thing? I have the job opportunity in front of me. 
and I said yes to it. And that's led to me like doing all the things I've done since um, for eight years now. Um, like I might not have gotten a master's degree if I hadn't taken that, that uh, leap of faith in myself. So I think that's important to, to listen to, but you know, like I think we're always the people doubting ourselves the most, like as RuPaul says. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, could you tell us a bit about like the film things that you're doing? Yeah, um, so like I said, I got started like helping with subtitles and helping with some, yeah, with subtitles especially. And then and fixing like the English and someone's like early version of their script and treatment, film treatment. And then um, my friend Kovic was writing his first feature film which is called White Building. And it's about this, about his own life, like about growing up in this uh, building called, nicknamed the White Building in Phnom Penh, which is a large tenement apartment complex that's been in the center of the city since the early 60s and had been re-inhabited after the Khmer Rouge by mostly by artists and uh, dancers, singers, uh, who were trying to resuscitate the art scene. So it was an important place in the city and the country's history. And in the 2016, it, when we were starting the project, it was under threat of demolition and eviction. Uh, it had been for many years. In 2017, it ended up being demolished. Um, but at the time we were writing the script that was kind of about young people like my friend Kovic and uh, growing up in the building, facing the idea of losing their home. So we, I started just helping out with English, but then they actually decided to hire me as a co-writer uh, because I guess they knew that I knew enough about film. We all had the same kind of taste in film and they knew I was totally new at it, but it would be a good opportunity to work with someone else who was making his first feature. Uh, and my, my friend, uh, David Chu was the producer, is the producer on the project. Uh, and he, he had made some films about like in Cambodia, he's Cambodian French. He made a documentary called Golden Slumbers. That's very worth watching about the Cambodian film scene before the Khmer Rouge. Um, that was like in Can uh, sorry, that was in Berlin Film Festival and it had one it had traveled a lot. Then he made another film called Diamond Island about present day Cambodia, about development, real estate development, and it's a fiction film though. And that film like went to Cannes um, in twenty sixteen. Um, so I was, that's when I started to get really more involved because we were preparing to like send the actors to Cannes, like getting their tuxedos and stuff. And I was dropping out where I could on my free time. And then I started getting involved with Kovic's project. And actually we shot that film in uh, October of 2019, last October, October, November. So that was like an amazing experience to um, see that project from its very, very beginning, like the very first treatment that Kovic ever wrote um, that was in, yeah, like maybe February 2016 until until now where we're, we're kind of stuck because of COVID, but um, he's edited the film, we've done the sound, we're just kind of waiting to be able to send him back to the lab to finalize it once this is all over. And we're planning the festival strategy for the film and distribution. So it seems like that film might actually have some international success, so we'll see. Uh, but it, it will be delayed because of the way that COVID is affecting the film festival scene and film industry this year. But we'll see. 
there's a lot of positive chances ahead. And yeah, that, that turned into opportunities to produce as well. So I produced COVID. He also made a documentary at the same time that he was working on that fiction. And I helped with three short films that we like crowdfunded money for um, from first time female filmmakers, Cambodian filmmakers who are all like working with us, like our friends, but had never had the chance to make their own film. So we finished two of those films. They've traveled a lot, won some awards actually. And um, one of them is a different kind of film. It takes more time to edit. It's like a very large documentary. So it might end up being more than a short film. Oh, wow. um, still editing. And then, yeah, now I'm like developing. Uh, we're in like post-production on another short film. There's a lot of new projects in the, in the works and uh, it's exciting. And there's always like, even in this moment with COVID where we don't know what's happening next, like, so far, it seems like we, we just kind of have this time to develop projects and, and think about what we want to do and um, put together our scripts or dossiers or whatever. So, um, yeah, it's, uh, it's kind of opened up. It's opened me back up to the things that were also really interesting to me in college, but never felt um, like career path, like never felt like I could turn that into, yeah, a career or a way to make money but in fact uh, it's so much more like mm, enjoyable and nurturing in some ways than uh, what I had imagined like working in a legal institution like the Committee Tribunal would have been um, so so far I'm like able to have both uh, entertain both sides of my brain um, and I feel lucky to be able to do that um, and I need to remind myself of that feeling when I get down on myself for straying from the career path. Yeah, I guess then, like, looking back um, on yourself, like, either your past self or if you were talking to an undergraduate now, like, what, what advice would you give them? Yeah, I would just say, like, you should, you should try to listen to yourself. You should try to listen to your impulses your, and your intuition. Um, if you if you have the opportunity to um take a risk but you know it sounds interesting then you should do it and you might learn from it that that's not something you want to do and that's perfectly fine um yeah and the other thing i would say would be to like try to remove any kind of time pressure or that kind of mindset like i need to get this done in a year or two um, I need to be, you know, um, in a in a certain level, like within three years, like that kind of building timelines and um, pressure is not really healthy and it's not really true. Um, and once you remove that kind of self-determined uh, like timeline, then you can open your mind to like the way that a career might develop itself in a different way um, or the other opportunities that might come along or the friendships or relationships that might come along, which are as important, if not more important than whatever career you'll create. Um, I think that's all, but I guess the, the other thing is that there's not really one right answer. There's, 
you have to balance many different things. You have to balance your like financial future. You have to balance your family, family's expectation or future as well. If you're expected to provide for them um, or the family that you might create eventually uh, through your relationships. Um, and, but the, the one thing that you can remove from that balance or that equation is like these expectations for yourself. Um, and that's really hard to do, but I think it's important. Like you need to just be yourself and not be your future self because your future self doesn't exist. <laughs> um, do you feel like your your friends, either from Stanford or that you made along the way, like had a similar realization or experience or did you also like watch friends like go the career path trajectory? I think it's a mixed bag. Like I have a couple of friends who went, you know, straight did all the steps they had to do to become a doctor because that takes so long. And if you're going to commit to that, you have to just start. And, um, but I do know some people who came to that a bit later. So they, they did med school a bit later. Then I have, um, a num I, for a while was kind of like wowed at my friends, especially the ones in tech who had, uh, taken jobs. Some of them like, I never expected them to work in tech. They were, you know, interested and like stars in the humanities. And there they were working like in something like for a tech company that it just didn't compute for me when we were graduating. But they like in the time that I was, you know, going back and forth to Cambodia, they had just gotten promotion after promotion after promotion, like raise after raise after raise. And they were able to make like investments in their future that I could never do like from my salary in Cambodia. So um, I understand like that path and it, it kind of, it showed me at the same time when I knew like, well, that's not really what I want to do. And I'm happy that I'm not doing it. It also showed me like that what they're doing is perfectly valid and amazing for them. Um, I had that experience at my five-year reunion at Stanford in 2017, where just like so many people had really just been in the Bay Area for the past five for the five years preceding. And some of them like after five years had like bought a house in on the peninsula, they had a family, they had their first kid or like they had a, a pet or something. But like, <laughs> I was like, wow. Or a plant. I'm just back in Cambodia, like I have a cafe, like <laughs> I'm crazy, <laughs> but I was like so happy. And I was also kind of affirming to myself, like, no, this is what I want to do. I, and it wasn't about comparing myself to others. It wasn't saying like, oh, I'm doing something better than them. Like, no, I'm doing something crazy. Like I'm, there's no way to compare the two, but I, I could see like what they were getting out of what they were doing. And I could also see what I was getting. Um, I also noticed around that time though, like after I think we'd all been working for about four years, um, outside, like after yeah, being out of school for four years, there was kind of a, a shift taking place. Like people were maybe changing their job, changing their career, like their field. Um, people were going back to school for other things, masters, uh, PhDs, uh, or like deciding they wanted to be a lawyer going to law school. Um, so it, 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 again, it showed me that in this period, like four to six years out, um, there's a lot of moving around and a lot of self, uh, 
questioning, um, figuring your your path out and figuring out your priorities. You know, it's also the time where you start to see less of certain friends and you you know which friends you're closer with, like who still matter to you, who still check up on you. And um, it's kind of that period where I guess you start to see more of what's next. But even then I can't say like, what 10 years from now will be I, I kind of know better what the next five years will be but um i mean that's maturing that's like becoming more confident in your own ways and your own relationships and your own um like professional abilities so i think it makes sense um and again yeah, you, you have to like push yourself and actively recognize when you're comparing yourself to others too much and that's easy to do if you're a graduate of somewhere like Stanford where some people are doing like insane incredible things um, but those are the opportunities that were presented to that person or that person achieved and um, that's great <laughs> yeah and then I guess I mean now that you um you know, you're not on the career path planning um, uh, mindset. How how do you think about the future, especially since like coronavirus and COVID is so uncertain? And, and how would you, um, you know, recommend or or how you know how would you describe your experience to to students about how you're thinking about what comes next? Mm. I don't know the answer. Uh, I was like up late last night, like full of thought, like for no reason. Just, I think I have too much free time to like just be thinking. So I couldn't sleep. <laughs> so it's clearly like, I'm not, I don't know exactly. Um, I, yeah, I kind of like, I know like, intuitively what things are interesting to me or important to me right now and that's why like i know very clearly like that the cafe needs to close for example but i can't do that till i get back to cambodia to like move our stuff out and you know but i know it's gonna happen like the same i know that i want to keep producing new projects in the film side of things um but I've always kept this kind of like idea that the the work I was doing with the Stanford Center um, was like the career path for me. And I have been like thinking a bit more um, in the past year or so about ways to like bring the two together, um, like kind of create something that might not exist or like look for the people who are already thinking about those kind of linkages between the academic, like international justice, human rights related world and um, film and the, like the, the projects that catch, like, yeah, catch me and um, are important to me. So I need more time to think about that. But there's also other projects that come up that I um, think would be interesting. And part of that is from living in Phnom Penh for now off and on eight years, um, maybe 
five or six years total and uh, seeing this place, seeing it change a lot, seeing all the other things that affect my friends' lives. Like, um, and in some ways that's given me perspective about the Khmer Rouge Tribunal that studying it from an academic perspective or a monitoring perspective wouldn't have. Like understanding that the things that are important to the young generation, my generation in Cambodia, which is by far the majority, like 70% plus of the population, are not necessarily transitional justice. Um, even if there's a lot of awareness of the past, like they're worrying about like the cost of education for their children or healthcare issues, like healthcare is number one. And now we have coronavirus affecting the world, but um, other things like, like that. So ways of bringing myself into those sectors is also interesting to me now. So yeah, it's kind of an open, book the only thing I do know is of course that I would like to find a way to have more work in the U.S. to be able to be back home in the U.S. like near my family a bit more more than just visits every once in a while and but I also know Cambodia is so important to me and so I know that I want to try to build some way to bring the two like make the two more uh What's the word? Compatible. Like, <laughs> compatible, yeah, but like balance the two. So I could be in both, like maybe it means I have to travel a bit more, but um, to be able to do projects that cross uh, both Southeast Asia and the US, California um, would be my ideal. And I'm not sure yet exactly what that takes, but I know that there are like a lot of Southeast Asia focused organizations in California. There's of course the Stanford Center for Human Rights, which is rare in having the kind of focus on Southeast Asia that it does, especially in the programs that it runs. So thinking about that and um, like thinking more about rather than what job like position is perfect for me, but more like what what is important to me and trying to build the job um, around those fundamentals um, rather than the way I was thinking before, which was kind of the opposite. Thank you so much again to Daniel for sitting down with us in our Notes from Alumni series. As usual, all of the resources and organizations that Daniel mentioned will be available in our show's show notes, so be sure to check them out. To keep human rights close to your home, subscribe to The Rights Pod wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to The Rights Pod. The views reflected in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of the Stanford Center for Human Rights.